I love going to church from the moment I first set foot in one. I'm pretty sure that even before I set foot in a church, I was carried in, maybe at, at six days old at the oldest, from the moment I was born until, well, right up until now. I just love being in church, not just in worship, but in, in the seasons and the rhythms of church and the classes and the Bible studies and participating in the various opportunities and things that we, we present, not only here, but in every church I've ever served and throughout my life. But as a kid growing up, I really loved church. I mentioned before in a sermon or two that my family moved a lot, and that's a longer story, but we moved about every 14 months, and that meant going to a new school and having to make new friends, and I was relatively shy in those days, and going to a new school and walking into that classroom with all those unfamiliar faces was pretty stressful, but church was the one place where I knew. No matter who I was or, or where I was from, Somebody would, lo- would welcome me. Somebody would treat me kindly and graciously. And all those things I mentioned, that the seasons and the rhythms of church, uh, the worship service itself, the scene of the doxology and the prayers and the choir and all of that just felt like home to me. In fact, by the time I was in seventh grade, this is a true story, by the time I was in seventh grade, I was elected to serve as the youth group representative to the governing board. That's true, really, it it is. And you can laugh at that too because it's kind of funny that what seventh grader out there really wants to be on a board at their church? Uh, But I loved it. I I only only had to go to two meetings a year. I didn't go to the monthly meetings. I just went twice a year as the youth rep. But I loved that. I loved being involved in all the things that were going on, especially in junior high and seventh grade. I really loved our youth program. We had a great youth, youth director. He was the coolest guy I'd ever met. He had long, this was 1970. He had long, some of you remember 1970? Do some of you? Good, thank you. He had long hair. Remember long hair back then? He had a mustache and a beard. He wore a leather jacket to church. Can you imagine such a thing? It had fringe. It was dark brown. It had fringe all the way around it. He drove a motorcycle to come to church. No one who was in a conservative church back then would have dared be on a motorcycle, but my youth director was. He was so cool. He was so hip, so fun. His wife was every bit as awesome as him, too. Smart, funny. They would take us to the beach three times a, a summer in the, you know, June and July and August. We'd have an all-day beach trip. This was in Southern California. Everything about it was great, except, except there was this strange way of teaching about God. It's what, what Benjamin Corey, a good, a good writer that I've been reading lately, calls, God loves you, but. Have you heard that before? God loves you, but if you don't believe the right things or practice the right things, you might get punished. And if you don't believe those things, you might get, you might get punished for a long time in eternity and burned forever. I remember even as a seventh grader thinking, this doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, when you're in seventh grade, when your, your brain starts to, to, to grow and, and to uh, evolve, as it were. Below that age, you tend to think fairly, in fairly literal terms. As you hit 12, 13, 14, 15, the brain is able to understand complex thought, abstract ideas. I remember thinking in seventh grade, if there's this God who loves us, Except for these things, how does that work? In fact, there was even a teaching that our youth director uh, gave us in that, that seventh grade year about the rapture. Have you heard about the rapture? Some of you know about this. I'm serious. Raise your hand. How many of you heard, of, heard about the rapture? Oh, you have. Good. Uh, um, the rapture is this idea 
was this idea that Jesus is going to come back and take everybody that's on the inside. Everybody that believes the right things and belief, the right beliefs were almost more important than the right actions. And then all the bad people are going to be left behind. And then seven years later, Jesus will come back again and this time he's going to be really ticked and the whole world's going to be destroyed. That's the short version of it. I didn't realize until I was in seminary in my second year at age 26 that the word rapture and the idea of rapture is not found in the Bible. You can Google that later if you don't trust me. If you do find a Bible where it uses that word, rapture, it's a mistranslation of the original languages. It's not there. It's not in. In fact, someday, I got to do this. I kept, I've been saying this for 10 years. Someday, maybe I'll do it in the next couple of years. I'm going to write a book titled, Not Left Behind. Because that's the story of the Bible. Not that somehow, if you believe the wrong things or act the wrong way, then you're going to be punished forever and forever, now and forever, amen. No. But here was this teaching, this fear-based teaching, this fear-filled idea that somehow, if you mess up, God's going to get you. The problem is a fear-based religion has nothing to do with Jesus. Now, fear-based religion is not limited to Christianity. You can find this idea in just about every major religion that exists. But for us Christians, it's, it's important for us that we look and see that this fear-based basis has nothing, nothing to do with the Jesus of the Gospels. Go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What will you find Jesus teaching on constantly and continuously? Some of the stories repeat themselves in the Gospels, but over and over and over again. What do we hear? We hear of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercy being given to anyone and to everyone. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved only those who believed the right way and acted the right way? No. For God so loved the world. Fear-based religion has nothing to do with Jesus. It creates this sort of us and them, insiders and outsiders. Jesus teaches, on the other hand, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, I say, love your enemy as well. Fear-based religion teaches the, the myth of scarcity, to hold on to what we have and to cling to it like it's a, a life raft in the, in the ocean, barely keeping us above the waves. Jesus says, no, if someone comes to you and asks for your shirt, give them your coat as well. Fear-based religion says, oh, you better be careful or God's going to smite you. A Jesus-based, a love-based religion invites us to understand the goodness of God's grace. I, I, like I said, I read a marvelous book this week by Benjamin Corey. It's titled Unafraid. He writes a lot about the God loves you but idea of belief. Then he says, fear becomes the most destructive foundational force anyone could build upon. Do you hear the clarity of words? Fear as a foundational force is destructive. That applies to your family. That applies to our church. It applies to our politics. When fear is at the center of the way we approach any of those, it is ultimately destructive. Fear is outside the teaching of Jesus. Now, I, I do know there can be some rough stuff in the Bible. I, I, I know all those texts. I learned them when I was back in junior high. I looked up some of that stuff. There are some terrible things about war and some terrible things about what God instructed people to do. It's Benjamin Corey in that book, Unafraid, who says, one, one way to read the Bible, though, is to understand it as the emerging relationship between God's people and God. 
uh, sort of an evolving understanding of how God wants us to operate. I like that. And the second way to look at it too is to take any teaching you find in the Bible that feels uncomfortable, that feels strange, and actually run it through a colander. You know what a colander is for wiping away all the dirt from your vegetables or your fruit or whatever you have in there. To, to let that go to the other side, run those teachings through the colander of Jesus' teaching. If it, if it fits with something Jesus would say, then it's something to consider. If it's something about anger and, and meanness, if it's, something about, if it's something about slavery, for example, even the New Testament says, slave, slaves, obey your masters. Take that piece, run it through Jesus' teaching. Is there any room in Jesus' teaching for slavery? Absolutely not. The Apostle Paul wrote, for there is neither slave nor Jew, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's the colander through which we run those things that are, that are confusing. Fear, though, is pretty tempting. Fear, frankly, works. So sometimes we latch on to it. Have you read the book, The Life of Pi? My son read it when he was in middle school several years ago. I, he encouraged me to read it. I sat down and read it in a couple of days. It's, a, it's a, a quick and engaging tale about a zookeeper who moves his family from India to Canada by, by ship. And he brings some of the animals along with his family. And the ship encounters a storm. It is sunk. Pi survives. Pi survives. It's the name of the young boy along with a 450-pound Bengal tiger on this raft in the ocean. In the middle of that, he, he, he writes this about fear. I must say a word about fear. It is life's only true opponent. I wrote in the margin of, my, of the novel, put this in the Bible. It really ought to be added to the, to the sacred words that we remember. Fear is life's only true opponent. Now, to be clear, though, fear can sometimes be a useful thing. A few years ago, I was on retreat in Arizona with some preacher friends of mine. We we're up in the mountains, and, the, and the, they're surrounded by, up in, the, up in the desert, surrounded by mountains. And every day, we'd start with a very early morning breakfast and then go on a five, six-mile hike in one of those mountain ranges. It was a great, great fun. I was by myself, a group ahead of me and a group of preachers behind me, and I came around a trail, and I heard that distinctive sound of a, of a rattlesnake. Now, I didn't say... I'm not going to let fear guide me. I'd like to say hello to you and reach down to the snake. No, no, no. What did I do? No. I, I walked around the snake, of course, because that rattle was telling me, you don't want to come by here. I remember playing golf one time on, on vacation on Hilton Head Island. They handed us the, the, uh, the local rules for the course, and one of the rules in bold said, if your ball lands near an alligator, drop a ball a safe distance away. There will be no penalty. <clears throat> I said to my partner, I didn't need that rule to know that's what I was going to do. <laughs> but see, here's the problem in the church. Sometimes we think, especially in fear-based religion ones, we think that God is like this giant alligator who's waiting somewhere in the marsh for you to stumble, for me to trip and fall, and to, to grab us, grab us in, his, in his jaws, and tear us apart and punish us. No, no, fear destroys. Fear, Benjamin Corey says, is a liar. Do you remember what this seasoned pastor wrote to Timothy at the beginning of the letter? For we have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of love and power. In the text that Linda read for you a few moments ago, it begins by saying, build yourself, strengthen yourself, be strong in grace. This is the opposite of fear. When our ministries are gracious, when our ministry and our congregation is gracious, it allows us to move away from fear 
toward hope and faith, toward love and joy. When, it's, when our ministry is fueled by grace, it affects the way we treat others and the way others treat us. Fear leads to lying, to, mistreat, to, to mistrust, to mistreatment of the other. Sometimes it's hard to face, to face these realities when fear is the operative force in one's life. It's especially hard when we acknowledge, as I said a moment ago, that sometimes fear can actually lead to success. I mean, think about that. Maybe you've known somebody in your family or maybe at work, your boss, maybe perhaps at school, different things you participate in, someone who is tough and stern and, and angry and mean and rude and threatening and says, you better do this or you're not going to get what you need to get done and I'm going to be angry with you. Maybe, maybe you're with somebody who works like that. I have been. It can sometimes lead to success. But is that really the kind of person you want to work for? I, I'm remembering my, my basketball coaches. I had more than one. I said, like I said, I moved a lot, so I played for a lot of different coaches growing up. I remember Mr. Jones, my senior year. Coach Jones was tough and demanding, and he would call us out if we made a mistake, especially if we got out of control in the way we behaved. But he was always, always, always concerned about us first. His job, he said to us, was to shape us as, as young adults who would be, be, be kind and caring and do something that matters in, in the world. He wouldn't hesitate to point out a concern, but ultimately we played, we'd run through a wall for Coach Jones because we knew that he cared about us and loved us. I do remember one time I, I'd fouled out of a game. Uh, we eventually won the game, but I fouled out in the fourth quarter. And that's when you get five fouls in, in high school. I sat down at the end of the bench, and the game started up again. The referee ran past me, and so I stood up and offered him some advice. <laughs> Coach Jones said, Miles, sit down and be quiet. And then after the game was over, we did win. He came over to me, and he said, you know, you're at your best when you just let your best self come forward. But when your anger takes hold of you, everything falls apart. When you become afraid, you, you're not only the player that I know you can be, you're not the person you can be. I had another coach my junior year who called us names, who put us down, who would in, in, insult us in front of the other players, even in front of the fans sometimes during the games. Both were very successful. Both coaches had good teams that made it into the district playoffs and challenged for state tournaments and all that sort of thing. Which one do you want to play for? The answer is obvious. Grace invites us to live a life free from fear. Grace is not a get out of jail free card. Grace does not cover up failures and say, oh, well, it's fine. Everybody just move on. Everything's fine here. No, no, no. Grace turns the lights on. Remember what Jesus said, though? The light of the world has come, but some prefer the darkness. See, grace doesn't shy away from naming the failure, the mistake. Mr. Miles, sit down and be quiet, my coach said once. No, grace names the concern so that the mercy and forgiveness that need to be spoken can finally come about. Grace never says turn or burn. Instead, grace says look through the lens of love at your life and you'll see what it is that matters the most. Now, let me be clear. You may be thinking that I'm speaking only of Churches that have this kind of fear-based theology. But sometimes even churches like ours 
with a more progressive and an open way of thinking about God and the world and our understanding and relationship to that God and to each other can still find fear working its way into the way it practices that faith. Fear can sometimes still be used to, to keep people in control or to get one's way. Instead, what we need are churches that can be nimble and quick, that can look and not be stuck in a rigid way of, of being, but be nimble and quick and respond to the world in the way the world needs it, in a way of graciousness and kindness. There's a marvelous book that I reread this last week titled, If the Church Were Christian. Would you love that title? If the Church Were Christian. It's by Philip Gully. He's a Quaker, a very good writer. He tells a story about a time that he visited another church. He's a Quaker pastor, but he likes to visit churches on his, on his weekends off. And so he went to this other church, and he really appreciated the, the beauty of the, of the worship service, the choir, and the, the sermon. And so he waited at the back door to shake the pastor's hand to let him know that he really appreciated the entire day. But he was right in line behind a woman who was visibly upset. She was shaking. He could see tears on her face. She was hunched over. She came up to the pastor, and the pastor said, it's nice to see you. Are, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. My father died a few days ago. He was never a member of a church. He wanted to join, but he never did. I'm worried about him. Where is he? Where will he go for eternity? The pastor took a hold of her hand, and he could see how upset she was. In fact, he, Philip notes this too. She was clearly mentally disturbed in this moment. He kind of leaned in toward her while he held her hand. He said, tell me about your dad. She said he was such a good man. He loved his family. He loved his friends. He loved being alive. He did wonderful things for the neighborhood. I miss him so much. The pastor, with a moment of insight, said, we don't do this often, but in our church, we have a ritual for welcoming new members who have already died. May I do that for you and your father? She nodded her head, and he offered a prayer, and he said something like this, God, we know that you love her father. We know that you've already received him into your loving arms. Now, if you would, please let him know also that he will be a part and a member of this congregation for as long as this church exists. God bless him and bless us as we let his life of love guide us. Amen. And then he smiled at the woman and said, now your father and you are both members in good standing in our church. Goli said you could see the woman stand straight. Her shaking stopped. It was like she'd lost a 50-pound bag of rocks off of her back. She smiled warmly at the pastor, said thank you, and went on. He came next, and he shook the pastor's hand, thanked him for the sermon and the beauty of the music and all of that. And, and then he said, I, I need to know, pastor, do you really have a ritual for welcoming dead people into the church? And he said, no, but it seemed like a good idea, don't you think? I love that story. Why? Because he's not stuck in the, oh, my God, we have to do it like this, or somehow it'll all be wrong. Instead, in the moment, he allowed the teachings of Jesus the graciousness of God, the love and mercy that, that Jesus has taught for 2,000 years to guide how he acted in that place. First Community Church, we, we know that Paul's words to the young Timothy are true. You then, my child, be strong in grace. 
for more than 100 years, we have been and we are. Let us continue to be strong in the grace of God.